When I was in high school, I spent a lot of time hanging out with three good friends, Wilbur, Daryl, and Joe. I could tell a lot of stories about these guys, and I want to tell you one of those today, but I won't do that just yet, because first, I want to explain what today's message is about. We're in the second week of our series called Indestructible Joy. We're looking at Paul's letter to the Philippians, and our goal is to see how God will give us real joy, even when times are hard. Last week, I shared that Philippians emphasizes the theme of joy more than any other book of the Bible. I also talked about the fact that biblical joy or gospel joy is not just a feeling. It's not just a a surface level emotion that comes and goes based on our circumstances. Gospel joy is a deep gladness. It comes from the confidence that God is in control. It comes from believing that God works all things together for the good of those who love him. And it comes from a determined choice to praise God in every situation. So, in Paul's letter to the Christians in the town of Philippi, he talks about this joy a lot. We're going to see that again in what we read today. We're focusing on the first 11 verses in Philippians chapter 2. And to be honest, we could spend months studying just these 11 verses. This passage is so rich. It's challenging and encouraging and inspiring all at the same time. And here's the reason why. Jesus is at the very center of this passage. So let's dive in. I want to read the first two verses of Philippians 2. Paul writes, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Now, Paul is writing from prison here. He's sending this message to a church that is made up of people he loves very much. And what's the main idea that he communicates here? He says, guys, If you are really serious about following Jesus and you're not just playing a game, you need to live in a way that shows you're for real. And what evidence is Paul looking for here? What would demonstrate that this church has a genuine faith in Jesus? Paul said, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. In other words, live in unity. Don't get caught up in arguments. Don't hold grudges. Don't break into factions and divisions. Let the world see that you truly love each other. If you have conflict, work it out. If there's a difference of opinion about the direction of this church, find a way to build unity and keep moving forward. And if they reach that level of unity, what did Paul say? He said, if that happens, it will make my joy complete. Now, like we said, Paul's joy was not based on circumstances. However, if the Philippian church could achieve this goal, which, by the way, is the same goal that Jesus had for all of his followers, Paul's joy would be complete. He would have that gladness you get when your hopes become a reality. So, the main idea here is very simple. God designed the church to live in unity, and when that happens, it brings joy to everyone involved. So this is pretty straightforward. Now we know where to go from here, right? Just go live in unity. Uh, But that's where things get difficult. Everybody likes unity in theory, 
but it's not easy to achieve the oneness that Paul talks about here, much less maintain it. And now I'm ready to tell you about my friends. In the first couple years of high school, Wilbur, Daryl, Joe, and myself were pretty much inseparable. We did everything together. And that was a good thing because in ninth and 10th grade, we weren't very popular. To be honest, I'd have to say we were nerds. For example, we invented all these crazy nerdy games. We played virtual basketball games using a pair of dice. I can remember all four of us playing through the entire NCAA tournament bracket, sitting at our desks, rolling dice over and over, and writing the scores on a piece of paper. But I'd say we reached our peak level of nerdiness when we made up a game using our scientific calculators. There was a button on those calculators that would give you a random three-digit number. So each one of us got some paper and we wrote out numbers from one to a thousand. And when you hit the random button and it gave you a number, you would scratch out that particular number on your paper. So this game was like a race. The object was to be the first to scratch out all 1,000 of your numbers. In the end, nobody finished because it gets very boring when you're down to just a few numbers and your chance of getting what you need is one in a thousand. So really, it's no surprise that we weren't very popular, but we didn't care. We just liked hanging out with each other. Daryl's mom called us the fearsome foursome, and it was hard to imagine that things would ever change. Of course, things did change. As we got older, we actually became cool. We played real sports instead of the dice versions. We also got involved in student council and drama. And by the middle of our senior year, we sort of felt like we ran the school. But then the strangest thing happened. Two of the other guys decided the third guy was annoying. They started picking on him and making fun of him behind his back. And I was sort of caught in the middle. I didn't really pick on this friend, but I also didn't stand up for him the way I should have. And as the weeks went by, it became clear. We weren't the fearsome foursome anymore. It was two friends over here, one guy over here who was being pushed out, and then there was me bouncing back and forth between both sides. I remember being sad about the whole situation. But why do I bring up that story? Well, it's a specific example of a very common tendency. Relationships don't drift toward unity. The natural drift takes us to division. Now, before I move on, I need to, I need to let you know, Wilbur, Daryl, Joe, and I eventually worked things out and we became really good friends once again. I didn't wanna leave you hanging there. But in Philippians chapter two, Paul paints a picture that will not happen accidentally, at least not for long. In order for relationships to be healthy and, and thrive long-term, there has to be a willingness on both sides to do the hard work of building and maintaining unity. In most cases, you're gonna need some outside help. In a community like the church, you need supernatural help. Now, unity is a challenge even in the best of times, but this goal has become even more challenging here in 2020. When you take the coronavirus and all the controversy around that, and then you add racial unrest, and then you mix in our political climate, which has only gotten more divisive with a presidential election coming up, and finally, you stir everything together on social media, well, that is a perfect recipe for disunity. 
And I'd love to say the church has been immune to all this, but we know that's not the case, right? We've got lots of people in the church with very different positions on many of these issues. We've got pro-mask versus anti-mask. We have pro-Trump versus anti-Trump. We have Black Lives Matter versus All Lives Matter. I could go on from there, but I might just be raising your blood pressure by mentioning these things. And I think most of us have deep convictions on these issues, and it's a good thing to have those convictions. But for just a moment, let's set aside these divisive issues and think about how all of this affects our relationships. Think about the last few months. Do you have any relationships that have become more strained than ever before? From what I'm hearing, a lot of us could say that. And the truth is, it's not always possible to resolve these conflicts because like I said, both sides have to be willing to work toward unity. But in Philippians chapter two, Paul makes a very important point. The church needs to take a different approach to relational conflict. So what does that approach look like? Well, to put it very simply, it looks like Jesus. Remember what I said earlier, Jesus is at the very center of this passage. It wasn't really Paul who laid out this goal of unity. That goal originally came from Jesus. We see that in the Gospel of John chapter 17. In this chapter, Jesus prays for his disciples, but he also prays for everyone who would become one of his disciples in the future. And what does he pray for? He prays for unity. Let's read these words from Jesus. John chapter 17, starting with verse 20. Jesus says, My prayer is not for them alone, not just for those original disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So back in Philippians 2, Paul instructed the church to be one in spirit and of one mind. And here in John 17, Jesus prayed that all of his followers throughout history would be one. And why was that his prayer? Well, Jesus said, unity in the church will lead the world to believe that Jesus is who he said he is. So we're not talking about some side issue here, are we? There are eternal implications to this. If the church can be unified in love, the rest of the world will see that and be drawn to Jesus. More and more people will find salvation and eternal life through the gospel. So for all of us who are part of the church, Let's not be okay with divisions and grudges and anything that resembles an us versus them mindset. But again, this won't come easy. Some of you might say, now hold on, Doug. With some of these issues, my convictions are very strong. And when somebody else takes a position that I see as flat out wrong or even dangerous, I won't pretend that I agree or that it's not important. And listen, I hear you on that. I don't mean that we should abandon our convictions for the sake of unity, but I stand by what I said earlier. The church needs to take a different approach to relational conflict. 
That means we don't follow the patterns that we see all around us. Rick Warren had a great quote about this. He said, our culture has accepted two huge lies. The first is that if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, you must fear them or hate them. The second is that to love someone means you agree with everything they believe or do. Both are nonsense. You don't have to compromise convictions to be compassionate. Now, I believe that quote is primarily about relationships between Christians and people outside the church. But if this, if this applies to relationships between Christians and non-Christians, how much more would it apply to relationships within the church? We don't have to agree on everything, but we can still show each other compassion. In churches like Plum Creek, we've used a slogan for a long time that says, in essentials, unity. In opinions, liberty. In all things, love. So that means we won't compromise on the clear truth of God's word, but we also refuse to divide over matters of opinion. And through that whole process, while we work through our differences, we treat each other with love and respect. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can get to that place of unity. So let's pursue this common goal together. Let's make this commitment together. Just like Jesus, we will pray for and work for unity. So that's a very good step to take. But we have to realize it's only one step. The rest of this passage in Philippians 2 lays out a path that leads to this unity. But we don't get there just because we set the goal and we have a genuine desire to reach that goal. We only get there when our hearts and our minds and our attitudes undergo a complete overhaul. Let's read verses 3 and 4 of Philippians 2. Paul writes, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In my opinion, these are two of the most challenging verses in the whole Bible. Paul is telling you to put the needs of others above your own needs. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Value others above yourself. Seriously, is that even possible? Well, on our own, it's just not going to happen. But if you have made the decision to follow Jesus, this is what you're signing up for. You put your faith in Jesus, you begin that life-changing relationship with Him, but that's not the end. From there, you allow the Holy Spirit to transform you from the inside out, and you grow to become more like Jesus. And humility is a very, very important part of that. You see, this virtue of humility is directly connected to that goal of unity. We build unity when we take on the attitude of humility. You know, the opposite of humility is pride, and pride is the death of unity. Pride was at the root of that division among my group of friends in high school. Pride is at the root of most problems in a marriage, and pride is the reason for most of the arguments and divisions in the church. But then, how do we develop this trait of humility? How do we grow in this area? Well, it's easier said than done. For one thing, our view of humility is not always accurate. We might think of a humble person as someone who is passive or overly submissive or insecure, but that's not the case at all. What did Paul say? He said, humility means that you value others above yourselves. 
You put the interests of others ahead of your own interests. In other words, you're just not thinking about yourself very much. That's what C.S. Lewis said in his book, Mere Christianity. He said, a really humble man will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. So do you see why it's difficult to work on humility? The moment you start trying to master this trait, you're automatically thinking about yourself. You start to grade your performance. How did I do today? Was I humble? Actually, I think I did pretty well. I'd give myself a good grade on humility. Lewis went on to describe this very thing. He said, if you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. So it's kind of a conundrum, isn't it? If you're doing well in this area, you're not thinking about the fact that you're doing well. You see, pride will sneak up on you when you least expect it. For example, you may come away from this sermon feeling really convicted about your pride, but then the next time you see somebody else being prideful, you're gonna say, ha, proud. I can see it a mile away, and I'm not going to act like that. So, I think we've established the fact that it's not easy to kill your pride and grow in humility. But then, what's the solution? Is there any hope here? Well, this is another one of those areas where we need supernatural help. We need God to do this work in us. But we don't just sit around and wait for Him to do that. We can put ourselves in the place where God does this work of transformation. So where is that place? What does it look like? Well, as we keep reading in Philippians 2, we get a perfect picture of that place where we grow in humility. It goes back to the example of Jesus. Let's read Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. Paul writes, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So there's the pattern. There's the plan. Jesus not only sets the example of humility here, he shows us how to grow in humility. So let's break this down. How does Jesus demonstrate humility in this passage? Well, first, we see that Jesus is not just a man who was used by God. He is, in his very nature, equal to God, fully human, but also fully divine. That's what we read in verse 6. But Jesus did not use that equality with God to his own advantage. So that means when Jesus walked this earth and he related to mere mortals, he never played the God card. He could have. He had every right to. He could have said, all right, that's it. I've had enough of your disrespect and your rejection. It's time that all of you bow down and worship me and give me praise. That's exactly what Jesus deserved. But what did he do instead? Verse 7, he made himself nothing. He took on the very nature of a servant. And if Jesus was a servant, who did he come to serve? 
It's us, right? All of us. Jesus came to this world to bring us what we needed most. We were all separated from God because of our sin. We were all headed for eternal punishment, eternal death in hell. But Jesus stepped in. Verse 8, he went to the cross and he died for your sake and for my sake. Jesus was treated the way we deserved so that when we began a life-changing relationship with him, we could be treated the way he deserves. And what does that sound like to you? It sounds like humility, right? Jesus did nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. He valued others above himself. He put the interests of others ahead of his own interests. His life is the perfect definition of humility. Now, I said that Jesus not only sets the example of humility here, he also shows us how to grow in humility. Do you see it? The pattern is right here. We grow in humility when we live the life of a servant. You take this mindset of servanthood into every day and every relationship. No matter who you encounter, you think, how can I bless this person? How can I add value to their life? That's the opposite of pride, isn't it? Pride would say, how can this person help me get what I want or what I need? And that's just selfish ambition. But serving like Jesus is really about self-forgetfulness. You don't think about what it costs you to serve the other person. You don't think about how serving might help your image. And you don't think about what you might get out of the deal. You just learn to develop an outward focus. In fact, that's another way we can think about this. If you want to work on humility, replace an inward focus with an outward focus. So let's get practical here. How can we live with an outward focus? Well, look around. There are people all around us who need someone to show up and be a servant. We have no shortage of opportunities here. Think about it. Do you know someone who needs encouragement or support or just someone who cares? I bet you do. You know, I'm trying to get better about seeing these opportunities and stepping in to serve. And I know I have a lot of growing to do because I see other people who are much further along than me. My wife is a great example. She is constantly reaching out to serve others. And she's teaching our kids to do the same thing. Another example is Jared Perkins. You know, Jared is the one who had this idea for Plum Creek's teacher assistance program. A lot of you know about this, but teachers in our community needed help. And when they get back to the classroom this fall, a teacher may be in the school building on the days when their children are learning remotely. So these kids need a safe place to go. And Jared stepped up and he pulled a team together to serve these teachers and their families. Valerie Trapp is one of the key leaders of our teacher assistance program. And it's been very cool to hear her talk about how God is working through all of this. She's seen that when we take on the attitude of a servant and when we work to be a blessing to others, we get blessed in the process. I want to let Valerie share a little about this. Let's listen. Hi, I'm Valerie Trapp, better known as Miss Valerie. I am going to help with uh, coordinating of the NTI program that we're having here at Plum Creek. Several weeks ago, a parent was picking up her child from art class. She was just devastated on what to do with her children with her having to be back in the classroom full time. 
her students would only be there part her children would only be there part time and I offered to take her children and I looked at another mom who was also a teacher and I said I'll take yours too we'll see I can take up to 10 here in my classroom the next day Jared calls he said Valerie I've been thinking and I knew I needed to sit down and he had the same idea Tony and I had already talked the night before what if church I could use a room there and take even more children so it's like the Lord opened the doors and several of us have walked through during registration last night it was amazing seeing our church family here to greet teachers faculty staff at Riley and at Grand Slick and they were so appreciative of what we're doing but what we're doing is not for us but it's all for his glory I get emotional because of my love for the Lord number one but mostly my love for children and then their parents so I told them last night in this uncertain times they could be certain that their children would be loved and well taken care of while they were there in their classrooms taking care and loving on those children so this program shows us what can happen when the church comes together to reach out and serve people around us. That mindset of servanthood comes from an attitude of humility. And that humility builds a spirit of unity. And then what comes from that unity? Remember what Jesus prayed for? He prayed for unity among his followers so the world might believe that Jesus is truly from God. When the church lives in unity, Jesus is lifted up and the rest of the world starts to notice. This past week, it's been amazing to see major news outlets telling the story of this teacher assistance program that's happening here at Plum Creek. There was an article in the Cincinnati Inquirer. There were two reports on Fox 19. And it was really exciting to see that, but it's not about us. We don't want people to look at us we want people to see Jesus through us, and that's a key difference. We want to love well because that leads people to a life-changing relationship with Jesus. And when all of that happens, do you know what we end up with? We end up with joy. That's what Paul said to the Philippian church. Make my joy complete. How? By living in unity, which is only possible when we take on humility which is only possible when we live the life of a servant. And it's an amazing thing. Humility and unity bring joy, not only to ourselves and to others, but also to Jesus. I don't know about you, but I wanna be a part of that. Let's pray. Father, you know us. You know the difficulty we have with humility and unity. You know that uh, we are not always drawn to servanthood. We are drawn to our own self-interests. But Lord, I pray that you will build these traits in us. I pray that we will surrender to you and allow your spirit to work in us and transform our hearts and our minds. And then as we live in unity, as we take on these Christ-like qualities, I pray that the world is drawn to you. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to thank you for joining me today. And I just want to say, if you are someone who has not yet begun a relationship with Jesus, 
and you know you need to do that. You know you need to put your faith in him and be baptized into Christ. Boy, we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to walk with you through that process. You can go to plumcreek.org connect, and you'll find a place there where you can reach out and begin a conversation. And uh, from there, uh, we'd love to see you get connected to Christ and just grow and become who God wants you to be. Thanks again.